Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. We, We started a new series last week on the Sermon on the Mount. And what we said was that the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Because Jesus spoke about it, and he talked about the kingdom way more than we talk about the kingdom today. You know, um, the fact is that Jesus never says, receive, you know, receive me as Lord and Savior. But he always says, repent, see, enter the kingdom. He always says that. And we've been saying that whenever a new king or a governor or a CEO enters into a company or enters into a country and comes to power, um, the new power is always expressed in the form of a new administration. So you have a new team that takes and replaces the old team. New leaders that replace old leaders. But more importantly, you have new strategies, new policies, new values, um, new priorities. And Jesus, as he is now proclaiming his kingship, his power, his administration, we realize through the Gospels that the effects of Jesus' kingship is far greater than we ever imagined. The effects are much more uh, radical, much more comprehensive, much more holistic, far greater. And the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how far-reaching that transformation is. Very radical. And the Beatitudes, what we're reading right now, um, probably the most famous of those teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, they're all about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. What does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom? And they describe eight to nine qualities Um, of what a citizen of heaven, a citizen of Christ's kingdom is like. Last week we began, I'm just going to go through a brief review, okay? Last week we began with a series of three qualifications to enter the kingdom. In order to enter the kingdom, um, you have to be poor in spirit. You have to be in mourning. You have to be meek. And the summary goes like this. Um, the first one, being poor in spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you're poor in spirit. Uh, we've been taught throughout our lives that life is manageable, that life is inherently good, that uh, you just need to be smart, you just need to be pretty wise, and you can navigate all the landmines in life. But Jesus says no. Jesus says life is not inherently good. Your problems are not manageable. In fact, life is out to get you. It's out to kill you. It's out to destroy you. Life throws all kinds of problems, even if you've lived a good life. Not to mention the problems caused by vengeful people, jealous people, distrusting people, greedy people. 
Um, where does all that come from? That's the first one. That's, to be poor in spirit means that you have to admit that your problems are so far beyond you, no matter your gifts, no matter your talent, no matter your resources, no matter your intelligence, no matter your looks or your reputation. These are all things that we've built our lives on. Whether you have a good education, you know, a great career, you do not have the ability to get through life's problems on your own. That's the first point. That was yesterday, last week's first point, uh, to be poor in spirit. The second thing, Jesus says that you can't enter the kingdom unless you're mourning. Mourning about what? What that means is that you have to look, the, look at the brokenness around you. The brokenness around you. And no matter the temptation to blame other people in your life, authority figures, leaders, yourself, the world around you, or God himself, to mourn is to recognize the brokenness and to see that as his mere symptoms of deeper-rooted sin in our lives. Deeper-rooted sin on the inside making its way out. That the brokenness is a mere symptom of the vengeful, you know, jealous, distrusting, greedy hearts that we have. And that, it's, that the answer, the solution is not a philosophical one, but a spiritual one. I got myself in this mess. I broke free from the Father's hands. I ran into the waves. The waves are crashing around me. I'm drowning. It's not enough to admit that the problems are beyond you. But you have to admit that the problems in our lives are the result of sin. Sin, the brokenness, our sin. We have to see that. You can't enter the kingdom, Jesus says, unless you do that. The third thing that Jesus says um, in the Beatitudes is that he talks about meekness. He says the meek will inherit the earth. It's easy to despair when you see brokenness around you. It's easy to despair when you see the result of your own selfishness, your own sinfulness. You can say, on the other hand, that I need God's provision because I don't have the resources. I need God's wisdom because my intelligence is obviously insufficient. It's not enough. I need God's beauty. I need God's beauty in my life because I've been chasing other beauty and it's left me empty because the beauty is empty and now my soul and my life is empty. I was once a wild animal, but to be meek is to say that I want to be tamed. I want to be tamed by God. That's where we left off last week. Last week begins with three negative actions, three negative statements. You have to be poor in spirit. You have to be mourning about your sin. And uh, you have to be meek. You have to lower yourself. You know, that's, those are three negative actions. And mainly what Jesus is saying there is you have to turn from your self-sufficiency. You have to turn from your selfishness. You have to turn from your self-absorption. I want you to turn from that today we're going to focus on a positive action. One sermon, three points coming from one verse. To enter the kingdom is to turn to righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after blessedness. That's not what he says. In other words, uh, you know, he, he really says, blessed are you, if you hunger and thirst after something other than blessedness. In other words, if you try to be happy, if you try to you know, strive to be happy, 
you're not going to be happy. Anything else that we, that we pursue, anything else that we center our lives on, other than the kingdom of God. Now, folks, that includes your children. It includes your spouse. Think about the things that this includes. Anything else. That includes the closest, most intimate friends that you have. That includes, you know, some of us have grown up and we love our families. It includes your family. You may have built up your career to a tremendous degree. It includes that. It includes a reputation that you've built your life on. Anything else that you pursue or center your life on leads to despair. That's what Jesus is saying. Anything else was going to destroy you. It's not going to bless you. True blessedness is to seek after righteousness. That's what Jesus says. What is it? What is righteousness? At the heart of the gospel, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says you cannot have a righteousness of your own. You cannot rely on a righteousness of your own. Think about this. If your problems are so big, remember the first three Beatitudes, if your problems are so big and your sins are so deep that you have no resource in you to address them, then you can't have a righteousness in you either to address them. You need a righteousness that comes from outside of you, something that only God can give you. You need an outside righteousness, what the theologians call an alien righteousness. It comes from another world. It's not something that you could make up or earn on your own. Verse 6, then, is a tremendous test. Blessed are you if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. That's what Jesus says. If you really enter the kingdom, if you've built your life on the kingdom of God, then just as Jesus described it, you're going to find profound satisfaction. That's what he's saying. You're going to be filled. In order to put your life, that's what this means, in order to put your life back into correct orbit, you have to build your life on that truth and that promise every day. That's what he's saying. You have to be able to stand on a platform and say, I have a righteousness of my own. Now, some of you are saying, I've never heard that before. I've been in the church for a long time, but I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. Then you're not in the kingdom. Then you're not in the kingdom. You're standing at the door, and you're listening in. What we're going to do today is we're going to break that door down. We're going to see what's inside. Three quick points, okay? And it follows verse 6. The shortest passage we're going to study ever, all right? Three quick points. You have to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, you have to hunger and thirst after righteousness and be filled. Those are the three points. Hunger and thirsting after righteousness being filled. First, we're going to talk about hungering and thirsting. In our society, it's difficult to understand what it means to be hungry. You know, I mean, a lot of us are hungry you know, we've experienced hunger. You may be experiencing it now. But if you've ever been really hungry for a prolonged period of time and not have the resource to fulfill that, to satisfy that, if you've ever been in a place where you're really, really hungry, you know then that, that the desire for food, the desire for water is overwhelming. Overwhelming. Jesus says, people who are entering into the kingdom have a similar drive like that for righteousness. They're desperate for it. They're struggling after it. You know, on one hand, I'm going to submit to you that we're all, all people are doing that. 
hungering for righteousness. But on the other hand, Christians are struggling at a different level. Okay, at one level, everybody is struggling for righteousness. What does that mean? What is it? Righteousness, the biblical definition of righteousness, is approval, acceptance, being right with somebody, to be received, to be acceptable, to be loved. I'm going to give you some simple examples. Good examples, simple examples. One, you're preparing for an audition. I'm trying to get every, every class of person here, okay? You're preparing for an audition. If you pass this audition, you will enter into a program that will pretty much guarantee your career as a world-class musician for the rest of your life. Two, you are about to enter into a job interview. If you get this job, it will set your career path in a profession that you have been waiting for and studying and preparing for all your educational career. Three, you're running for office at a high level of politics. You are awaiting the count, the votes. Four, you're taking an exam, a professional exam, that if you pass, it will allow you to enter or break through an era or area of your profession that very small percentage of people can enter into, which is tremendous for your career. Here's one that everyone can relate to. You're going on a first date with somebody that you have been thinking about for at least a year. You've had no access, and you're just waiting. You're just looking for a chance to get to know this person, and now that opportunity is there, and you're preparing for that. What's the similarity here? In every one of these cases, and there are many, many more examples, in all five of those examples, you're awaiting a verdict about you. Each one of those things, depending on how you look at it, you're awaiting a verdict and what that says about you. Will you be approved? Will you be accepted? Will you be loved? Do you find yourself acceptable? You're waiting for righteousness. That's what you're doing. And when it comes in, what's the result? Incredible satisfaction. You know, I mean, you're going to want to take everybody out. No matter, in every one of those cases, if it comes in, if that righteousness comes, everyone gets to go out to dinner together. It's one of those kind of things. You celebrate, but when it doesn't come, when it doesn't come, the rejection destroys you. The rejection, it's just devastating for you. You know, let's talk about that date, that first date. If you've ever been on a date, that first date with somebody that you're really, really interested in, you know, I'm going to paint you a very negative picture here. That day, you could have lost your job. Maybe I'm just talking about men, but you could have lost your job. Your dogs could have died. You could have gotten a car accident on the way to the date left your wallet at home, been pulled over by a policeman because of a broken taillight as a result of that car accident, been, you know, given a citation on top of the broken taillight and the accident that was your fault because you've been thinking about the date, you've been, you know, pulled over by a policeman, got a citation for not having your wallet, so now you have to go to court, 
you know? And you realize, you know, that you have to now prove yourself in court. But if you hear, I would love to see you again, that's the best day of your life, okay? You are going to want to, you know, everyone gets to go out to, that night, you're going to take people out to dinner or something like that or a late meal or something like that. The approval always outweighs the suffering. The acceptance always outweighs the suffering. The Bible says everybody struggles for acceptance. Everybody is struggling for some place of, you know, uh, acceptance in their lives. It could be in their career. It could be in a relationship. Everybody's got different standards. Everyone's got a different view of who the judge is or the authority is for that acceptance. But no matter what, we all struggle with acceptance. We all get our identities from somewhere. We all get a sense of worth from something. We all have something that makes us feel good about ourselves. What's yours? The Bible says we all struggle with righteousness. And before coming to Christ, there are two kinds of people then. People who are incredibly or overly anxious because they know they're not acceptable. They know they're not acceptable, you know. Um, or people who feel covertly anxious because they're afraid that they won't become acceptable. Either way, there's a tremendous anxiety because we're afraid um, of the rejection that we'll receive or experience once everybody looks underneath the covers, underneath the hood of our lives. Deep anxiety. You know, why is that? Romans chapter 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. That's Romans chapter 3. Everyone's got that anxiety. Everyone's got that struggle. Everyone's got that fear. But people who enter the kingdom, that's the second class, the second type of person, they get to a place where they're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They realize that the reason why they're looking for acceptance is because they know that they're not acceptable to God. They know that. They cannot enter the kingdom unless they realize that they're not right with, with God first. They have to realize that God is displeased with them. God is angry with them, that they are unacceptable to God. Now, some of us are saying here, you know, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not about to hear that. You know, you said that God is God of love, and I want to submit to you that God is angry at you because he's a God of love. Think about this. Have you ever loved somebody who's been in addiction, who's been an addict? You know that they're destroying themselves in their addiction. You love them. That's why you're angry at them. You love them, and you're so angry. Have you ever really loved somebody? You know, you caught them in a lie. You caught them in a lie. You caught them in their addiction. What do you say to them? Don't you see that you are becoming less of yourself? For that one thing, you're now being controlled. Don't you see that? You're destroying yourself. You're angry. You're incredibly angry. You're angry because you love them. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference, not caring. If you love somebody, you're angry at the evil. If you love somebody, you know, real love is angry at their sin. Real love is angry at the evil. The heart is, you know, our hearts are always just crying out for justice, crying out for justice and mercy. And that's the reason why when you're angry at somebody, you feel bad. There's a part of you that feels bad. You know why? Because there's also part of our hearts that wants to be merciful. 
But there's also a part of our hearts that is just so angry because of love. It's the love that creates both. Our hearts cry out for justice and mercy together all the time. It's not like there's a part of our hearts, you know, that just cries out for justice. You know, the hating part that cries out for justice. And the loving part cries out for mercy. It's the love that cries out for both. Because we know deep inside, anyone who has done wrong to us needs both justice and mercy. We know that. That's why we cry out for that. And if our hearts, now our hearts are flawed, but if our hearts always cry out for justice and mercy, then what about a God who is infinitely loving and infinitely righteous? He is going to cry out for the ultimate justice and the ultimate mercy, isn't he? God knows that we are guilty. We need justice. We need restraint. Sin needs to be punished. Somebody needs to pay. And we, God knows that. But to say, you know, I don't really want to believe in that kind of God. I just want to believe in a God that's a lot more loving than that. There cannot be a God that's more loving than a God that loves both justice and mercy. And you have not entered the kingdom if you've not desired a God like that. Because God is a God of justice and mercy. To hunger and to thirst is to be desperate for a God like that. Second point is to hunger and thirst for righteousness a righteousness that we don't have. You never hunger after things that you have, right? We always hunger for things we don't have because we're empty. Usually, you know, when we are hungry, we say, you know, there's a, there's a cake in my kitchen right now, and if I could just have a piece of that cake. That's the way we treat righteousness. We just say, gosh, if I could just be a little bit more righteous, if I could just have a little bit of righteousness in my life. But here, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you will be filled. And the righteous, the word he's talking about is a sense of fullness. You will have full righteousness in him. That means two things. One, you have to know that we're empty. You have to acknowledge that we're empty. That just a little bit more righteousness is not going to be enough. But two, we have to realize that only God can fill us because God is whole. God is full and we need him. And what Jesus is saying then is the difference between a moral person and a person who's been shaped by the gospel. This is the test. This is how you know if you're just a moral person or if you've been somebody who's been shaped by the gospel. The moral person says, I am upright. At least I want to live an upright life. I have good intentions. I am religious. I live a good life. And what that does is it makes me smug. And so you know you're coming across a religious person when they sit down and you ask them for counsel. Their counsel is, you better get your act together. You better get your stuff together. You better get yourself together. You better pull it together. A Christian is different. A Christian has an actually, actually a higher view of righteousness, a higher view of truth other than just the good that we try to live out. A Christian loves beauty. A Christian would never excuse sin in yourself or other people. And yet, there's a peace about them. They're not put down. They're not condescending. What's the difference? The difference is this. Moralists and Christians both repent of their sins. Moralists can be poor in spirit. A moralist can mourn about his, or sin, his sin or the brokenness that's around them. 
A moralist can be meek and know that they must be tamed by God. A moralist will even repent of their sin as an act of self-righteousness. I'm repenting. But a Christian repents of their righteousness too and their goodness too. A moralist says, you know, I'm sinful, but I've come a pretty long way. I mean, I was here four years ago, but now I'm leading in the church. I serve in the church. Look at me. I mean, I'm even repenting. I'm changing. I'm growing. Approve of me. That's what a moralist says. You know, a Christian says, no. I even gave up that. I even gave up that. The only way to truly be acceptable is to trust that Jesus has received me whole. And I need to rely on what he has done, not what I've done. You see that? Totally different people. Two totally different people. If you're relying on your morality, your goodness, your pursuit of just goodness, your pursuit of wisdom, you know, you're still relying on your own record. That's what you're doing. You know, that's what makes you smug. That's why you feel like you have a right to say, you better get your act together. That's what a moralist does. But a Christian, you know, and as a result, you know, moralists tend to be bitter. They tend to be very entitled. You know, I deserve blessing. You know, they're very self-absorbed. You know, I, I deserve approval. They spread poison. Moralists are poisonous. But a Christian says, you know, there's no record like Jesus' record. There's no love like Jesus' love. There's no wisdom like Jesus' wisdom. And I need him. There's no beauty like his beauty. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. You know, it changes every part of a person's life. And so a Christian says, you know, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be here. You know, I failed. Look at my life. I failed. But the one thing that counts is that God accepts me because of his son. And so while a moralist spreads poison, a Christian spreads poise. Poison and poise, two very, very different things. When you're on a date or you have that job interview and you're sweating, everyone sweats during job interviews and dates, okay? But you know whether it's poison or poise when these things no longer determine your happiness in life. They're they're not the things that make you feel acceptable. That's the poise. That's where the poise comes from. That's where the calm comes from. You know, people are saying this or that about you. Whose verdict counts? It's the only verdict that lasts. The only verdict that lasts what counts. That's where the poise comes from. So you may do your best and you may become disappointed at times, you know, but when you remember that you're in the hands of somebody who emptied himself for you and his verdict is the only one that counts, that's why the shyness is gone. That's why the boasting is gone at the same time. Do you see that? Think about this. If you're using your looks to attract people, now everyone has got a Venus flytrap type of personality in them. Everyone's got something, a weapon that they have that they feel like they can get people with. Everyone's got that. For some people, it's their intelligence. Other people, it's their wealth. Other people, it's their, it's their looks or their figure. You know, other people, it's their sense of humor, you know, their business acumen. 
These are the things that we say, this is the source of my righteousness, why I feel like I am approved and I'm acceptable. The gospel says what you're doing is you're presenting to God a case, and what you're saying is here is exhibit A, here is exhibit B. Justify me, approve me, accept me. That's what you're saying. But the gospel is this. There's only one verdict that you need. And that one verdict that you need is the one thing that you cannot earn and you don't have it in you. You receive it. It's freely offered to you. Do you have it? Do you have it? Because it changes everything. Now, I know people who say that they love the gospel, you know, um, but they're unwilling to sacrifice a certain salary, you know, a certain educational standard or a certain physical standard for a potential spouse. You know, they love the gospel, but they say, you know, I am not willing to sacrifice you know, that person has to make at least this much, have to at least graduate from this type of school or have this type of degree. And they will choose that over Christian maturity or Christian character. What you're saying is your status is your non-negotiable in life. That's what you're saying. Status is the non-negotiable in your life. Character, even lasting love and faithfulness, are not the, they're not the non-negotiables in your life. Your status is. I know people who say, you know, I love the gospel, and they're willing to sacrifice their purity, they're willing to sacrifice relationships, they're willing to sacrifice even their family, you know, their family, just about everything that they have for that one person that they love in their lives. But when it comes to giving, you know, you're willing to give up everything else, but when it comes to giving for the one person who has emptied all of himself for you, you know, a love that you've, that you've never experienced, the greatest love that you could ever experience, they become very tight-fisted. Do you understand what I'm saying? These things are not our only hope. See, Jesus' character, Jesus' love, that's the only hope. That's the only hope we've got. It's going to set us free. You know, we have to be set free from these things. You can't give yourself to these things. You know, but you say, but I need to. Those people, they need me. They may to a degree, but really, in reality, you need it. You need it. That's why you're pursuing it. That's why you're running after it so hard. You're a slave. That's the heart of sin. That's what sin is. You see how the first Beatitudes work? First three Beatitudes lead to meekness, taming yourself, holding back. But when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, for God's righteousness, that's giving yourself. That's letting yourself go. So there's a part of us that we have to hold back. And there's a part of us that we have to let go. And Jesus says, when you do that, you will be satisfied. Think about this. You've been starving for 30 years. You know, you've been starving. There's this low-grade or maybe high-grade starvation that you've been experiencing for 30 years of your life. And one day as you're sitting around, You know, you see this man walking around with baskets full of filet mignon cooked to perfection from the Barclay Prime, okay? I I lost my place because I was thinking about the Barclay Prime. Um, You just need to hold your hand out, you know, and if you just acknowledge, if you just acknowledge your hunger, just acknowledge your hunger, you get it. When you don't do that, you're saying three things. One, either A, I'm not hungry, even though I am. B, I'm too proud or ashamed to admit that I'm hungry. You know, mainly we say, oh, I'm good, even though you're not, (laughs) right? Or three, you're afraid or you just don't believe that it will satisfy. 
Either you're hungry and you can't admit it, or you're hungry and you don't believe it because it's too good to be true. Does that make sense? The first two, it's pride. Would you let that grow? Would you let that go for the bread of life? You know, in Isaiah, there's this passage, very enigmatic passage, but one of my favorites. In Isaiah, it says, um, come, buy, and eat bread without cost. It's like an oxymoron. Come, buy, eat without cost? The cost has been paid. That's what Isaiah is saying here. He says, if you receive it, your soul will delight in the richest affair. That's what he says. Would you let the pride go to just get a taste of the bread of life? Or are you so full of pride, nothing else will ever be able to come in because that's going to make you infinitely empty, infinitely in despair? Or the third person, the third type, you're afraid it's too good to be true. It is true. It is true. Jesus is true. His love is real. The Bible does make sense. Something is telling you that it is. You know, most of us are afraid to receive because we're afraid it's gonna, we're going to lose control of our lives as a result. You know, there's those of us who say, you know, no, you know, first I'm going to go back. I need to clean up my life a little bit first. Then I'll come to church. You know, I need to grow a little bit, mature a little bit, improve. You're still trying to get control of your life without God. Do you see that? You're still trying to do that. You're saying, I need to be at my best. You're still trying to create the exhibits for God to accept you. Do you see that? How on earth will we be satisfied? And here's the key. You know, every audition, every date, every interview, it usually results in insecurity because at the heart, they're only looking at a glimpse of you. They're looking at you at your best usually, hopefully, at your best. The verdict that they pass is based on you trying and being at your best. And there's a deep insecurity from knowing that if they only saw all of me, thank God they don't see me off hours. Because not only would I not get hired, I'd be nothing. What if they saw all of me on the cross? Jesus says, I see all of you. I see you at your worst, and you need me. I see you at your best. You don't need me any less. You need me. I see you, and I accept you, and I've died for you. That's love. Jesus had to die. That's God crying out for justice. But he died for you. That's God crying out for mercy on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, <clears throat> we see a trial. And the Roman official Pilate he looks at Jesus and he turns to the crowd and he says, I did not find this man guilty. He's talking about Jesus. He's offering a verdict. This is a Roman official, an irreligious man, looks at Jesus and all that he's been accused of, all the charges brought up against him, and he says, you know, this man is righteous. But the crowd says, crucify, crucify. That's emotional content. Crucify him. Jesus was condemned even though he was acceptable. Why? It's so that his people could be made acceptable even though they were condemned. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the gospel. And he chose that. There was no self-entitlement in that. You know, Isaiah 53, you know, 
in Isaiah 53, it says that Jesus sacrificing himself, it was to his satisfaction. He was satisfied by that. That's what filled him. His sacrifice filled him. His emptying himself, his giving himself, him tithing himself filled him. His helplessness, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 8, verse 9, it says that Jesus became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Jesus became poor, poor in spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is mourning about sin, and he mourned to the point of becoming sin. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, says that Jesus became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's meekness. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, led him all the way to the cross because of his love. And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there is, I am thirsting and I am hungry. I was righteous. I deserve mercy. And yet, on the cross, my God, my God, has forsaken me. I am now hungry. I am now thirsting. You know, on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. He was thirsting. It was more than a physical thirst. He was thirsting for God. He was thirsting for the ultimate righteousness, a cosmic hunger for the ultimate righteousness because his righteousness had left him. He was forsaken for you. Jesus is saying, I was forsaken. You know, I'm not right with God anymore. God is displeased with me. He is angry with me. On the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on him so that the blessings of God would pour out on us. Jesus became unacceptable to God so that we could be accepted. We could have righteousness. We could become right with God. When you see that Jesus is satisfied in that, he did that because of his love. He was satisfied in that. He said, it is finished. What he's saying is there is, it is over. I paid the debt. There's no more need for us to continue to try to pay any debt. Do you see that? When you see that God is utterly and completely satisfied in you, you will be completely and utterly satisfied in Jesus. You're going to pursue Jesus. You're going to pursue his righteousness. Jesus' grace is sufficient for you. And when we as a church do that as a community, you know, one person doing that is not enough. When you as a church do that as a community, in one body, in our community groups together, that is when amazing things really start to happen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Then you will be filled. Let's pray.